My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Sometime during the 7th century, the Church of Rome adopted the practice of the Adoration of the Cross from the church in Jerusalem, or it's called like Santa Croce in Jerusalem, near St. John the Lateran, because there there was a fragment of wood believed to be the Lord's cross, and this fragment was venerated every year on Good Friday since the 4th century. According to the tradition, part of this holy cross was discovered by the mother of the emperor Constantine, St. Helena, when she went on her pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the year 326. And uh, we have a contemporary account that describes this service in Jerusalem. There was a coffer of gold-plated silver that contained this, this piece of wood from the cross, and it would be brought forward. And the bishop placed the relic on the table in the chapel of the crucifixion, and all the faithful would approach it. They would touch it with their brow and with their eyes and with their lips. They would touch that wood. And as the priest would say, Behold the wood of the cross, Echelinium Crucis. And so in kneeling before the crucifix and kissing it, we are really paying the highest honor to our Lord's cross because it was the instrument of our salvation. He saved us, but that cross was the instrument by which he saved us. Could have been another instrument, but that was the instrument. It was the most sort of dramatic and painful instruments that the that the Romans could devise. And so, because the cross is inseparable from his sacrifice, we reverence that cross, and we adore that cross. We adore thee, O Christ, and we bless thee, because by thy holy cross, thy, you have redeemed the world. That's what we will say on. Good Friday. And uh, during that veneration, there is a beautiful ancient tradition called the improperia, or the reproaches. They're often chanted by a priest during the Good Friday services while the people are venerating. So there's a lot of people going to venerate, and then they chant these improperia uh, because the cross is, is, is there, and, and, and this poem, this hymn, is haunting. It's very poignant. And there's a whole tradition of singing it in this kind of chant-like style. Maybe it's Gregorian. I don't know. It's very ancient in origin. But the idea is as though Christ is reproaching us. That's why it's called the reproaches or the imperia. 
improperia. And he is reproaching us, and he's kind of making us deeply aware of how our sinfulness, you know, and our hardness of heart, rather, is, is the cause of so much agony for our, for our sinless, say, and loving Savior. Like, why, why did you do this to me? And uh, you know, there's a, it was traditionally sung in Latin, but um, one of the translations says, My people, what have I done to you? How have I offended you? Answer me. Populi meus, quid feci tibi, aut in quo contristavite, responde me. And this would be sung in this haunting rhythm while people were going up. And they were meant to think about how we have offended our Lord, but then kind of like our response is to kiss this, this, this loving Savior on the cross, the, the, the piece of wood. I led you out of Egypt, but you led your Savior to the cross. For 40 years I led you safely through the desert. I fed you with manna from heaven and brought you to the land of plenty, but you led your Savior to the cross. O oh, my people, what have I done to you that you should testify against me? Holy God, Holy Mighty One, Holy Immortal One, have mercy on us. Sanctus Deus, Sanctus Fortis, Sanctis Immortalis, Miserere Nobis. It's a beautiful hymn that, that we can really like prepare for if we indeed end up singing it so that we can ask ourselves that question, you know, how have I let sin enter like that into my life? How have I like allowed myself to not perhaps give that much importance to the way I might offend the Lord? It's, it's very daunting, it's very kind of dramatic, and for one reason or another, during the Reformation, the reproaches were suppressed by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cramner, who suppressed a lot of stuff, you know, but uh, he was the it's Anglican bishop, and he eventually uh, just got rid of it. But with time, I think it was in the 19th century, eventually it was brought back because of its poignant and kind of um, dramatic nature. Now it seems that Anglicans still have returned to it. And uh, we understand that, that our Lord was condemned fundamentally for religious reasons, but they were ably contrived to be put in, in political terms to better convince the Roman uh, procurator. Right? He is telling us not to pay the tithes of Caesar. He has said that he will be the king. Now, like, the Romans didn't care about religious reasons, so they had to couch it in political terms. And the title, Messiah, which the accusation of the Sanhedrin focused on, becomes, in the, in the trial before Pilate, the king of the Jews. You see? He was the Messiah, he was the chosen one, he was the anointed one. But they shifted, and they say, he's a king, he's going to take over from you. Even Herod had already feared that. So they're playing on this fear of the political, in the political realm. 
This is what the Sanhedrin did. And we know that that will lead to the condemnation that, that will be fixed on the top of the cross, Jesus King, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, in all three languages. And of course, we know that Jesus had struggled all his life to avoid this confusion between a political realm and a spiritual realm or religious realm. But in the end, that confusion, which the Sanhedrin had focused on, ultimately led to decide his fate. But it's kind of it's not as though he didn't know that, but he allowed that confusion to stand. And we know that the religious authorities and the political authorities, that is, the heads of the Sanhedrin with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Roman procurator, both participated in the, in the death of Jesus in different ways, and, well, different ways, for different reasons in Christ's condemnation. Because the Jews were not allowed to, to exercise capital punishment, but the Romans were. But that's why they had to convince the Pilate to, to have him executed. But in the end, okay, those are like the historical elements of the crucifixion of Jesus, but in the end, it's not everything. It's not everything, ultimately, in the, in the sense that by faith, we know that we too are responsible for Jesus' death with our sins. My people, what have I done to you? How have I offended you? Answer me, he is saying to us now. Because we might be able to interestingly discover the reasons for the crucifixion, but ultimately we know by faith it is you and I you know, that are responsible for his death and for his agonizing death. And how did the Lord Jesus act during the Passion? You could describe it as superhuman dignity. Infinite patience. Not a single gesture not a single word that, that he did negated in any way what he had preached during his public ministry, during, during the gospel, in his gospel. Certainly, nothing there goes against the Beatitudes. Indeed, he asks forgiveness for those who were crucifying him. He was meek and humble, like a, like a lamb brought to its executioners. And nothing in his attitude resembles this kind of stoic, prideful disdain of suffering. He just embraces it somehow. And maybe we have allowed this prideful disdain of suffering, this rejection, or even somehow this kind of horror of mortification to enter into our life in some way and not embrace it as a source or an occasion of atonement. And of course, the, the Christians, not only did they, throughout the centuries, not only have they um, venerated the cross through the liturgy, but also, of course, through many works of art, through some very, very heart-wrenching paintings and scenes that are meant to be contemplated. That's why they're called devotional pieces. They're not even meant to be in churches. They were made by, I suppose, w relatively wealthy patrons so they could have a place in a room somewhere uh, to contemplate those images. And al almost always devotional paintings were had something to do with the Passion. 
there were also icons, like icons of Our Lady, but but this was a, a fairly, like how can I describe it, a popular theme. Okay? There's, there's some from the 14th century, 15th century, 16th century, Flemish painters. There's a beautiful one in the National Gallery by a Flemish painter by the name of Jan Mostart in the National Gallery here in, in uh, well, here in, in Ottawa, where you just see the, the, a bust painting, very, very beautifully done, uh, of, of the Lord with, with the crown of thorns. You can see his eyes are red, and the crown of thorns is there, and he's, he's got this, these thorny branches that, that were probably picked up in the courtyard somewhere and pressed tightly around his forehead. And these were put there as an occasion by the soldiers to parody his royalty. So since he had supposedly declared himself king of the Jews, well, they're, they're going to parody that with these thorns. And in this painting, you see drops of blood running down the Lord's face. His mouth is half open, and it looks like he has hard, a hard time breathing. How, how the artist was able to represent the difficulty of breathing of a person is, is quite impressive. You know, his, his mouth is kind of half open, and, uh, and there's a kind of worn-out mantle around him. almost looks like a piece of tin plate as it hugs close to his body. And his shoulders have cuts and from recent blows from the, from the flogging. And we see that his wrists are bound together by a very coarse rope. And there's a reed, a light reed in his hand. And uh, it's a kind of a scepter. And uh, with kind of double branches in the other, of course, again, mocking his royalty. It's some, it seems as though the Lord can't even move a finger. He's just reduced to total powerlessness. Like the, the prototype of the, all the people in history that have their high, hands bound. Well, when you contemplate a painting like that, and all you can do is stand there in silence. You stand there in silence. And it's unfortunate that those areas in the National Gallery are often quite empty. Right? People go to the modern sections, they go to the Impressionist sections, they like the I don't know, the Van Goghs that they might find, or the Monets, you know, with beautiful colors of ladies standing outside, you know, in the, in the woods or on the beaches with the wind fluttering and, you know, with their umbrellas and so forth. They're obviously wonderful paintings, but it's as though they've lost the vocabulary to read these dramatic paintings, these devotional paintings, and, and really all you can do is be there in silence. And it is somewhat sad to see a person there with their iPod or their, you know, their phones, their, their earbuds on and just going through these quickly, if there are some people in that area. And um, silence. And it leads us, of course, to consider the, the role of silence in our life. And it's one of the things that we read about in the Passion and we'll read about it a few times today in the Jesus, in the Passion narrative that, like Matthew says, Jesus was silent. He did not say anything. Right? He was silent before Caiaphas. He is silent before Pilate. 
He is silent before Herod. And he's silent before Herod because Herod wanted to see him do some cool miracle. That's what we'll see today. Because today's a, the account from St. Luke. And when he was reviled, we are told, he did not revile in return. Says St. Peter. He did not come back with a punch. And the silence is broken only one single last moment when we are told that he makes a loud cry from the, from the cross and then he, he yields his spirit into the hands, I commend my spirit, and boom, he dies. In that moment, today, we will, we will all kneel in silence. In silence. And that's what we're supposed to do in the day of recollection. We're supposed to be in silence. It speaks because it somehow opens the gate to speak to us. And when, when the Roman centurion heard those words and saw that silence, he said, truly this was, this man was the Son of God. And he is converted right there, Longinus, as we know. So we ask now in our prayer, to, why, Lord, did you have to go through all this? And why, why did you do all this? Well, a few years ago, back in 2001, uh, Don Javier wrote us a beautiful letter in April, sorry, in September of 2001, when he was in Torres Vidas. And he spoke about the cross as, you know, responding to that why, as the greatest revelation of God's love. That it was his merciful face, that is, it was a response to that phrase of St. John, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And this is the mark of our faith, what we call the royal highway. He says, Don Javier writes in his letter from September 2001, Love for the cross is one of Christianity's distinguishing marks, one which has been deeply engraved on the spirit of the work from its beginnings. It was especially in the course of the year 1931 that God, our Lord, through a series of interventions in Blessed Rosemary's soul, made it clear that identification with Christ on the cross is the royal highway for God's daughters and sons in the work. I remind you of these events in our history because when we remember and think over the marvels worked by God, which mark our path, we can and should find that they are like supports that help us to go forward determinately and joyfully in the way of our vocation with an urgent desire for holiness. To go forward determinately and joyfully in the way of our vocation, that, that actually is a phrase from the, from the collect, right, the, the opening prayer there of the Mass of St. Josemaria, that we go forward with determination, with joy, because we have, we have, we have not chosen the shorter, you know, the, the shorter straw. You've chosen the, the longest one. That's the one that God gave us. And uh, he talks about this moment in our father's life, which he took note of later in the intimate notes, the Apuntes Intimus, about what happened to him on a Mass in 1931. And this is a quote from 
our founder, the time came for the consecration. As I raised the sacred host, without losing due recollection, without getting distracted, there came to mind with extraordinary force and clarity those words of scripture. Etsi exaltatus fuera terra, omnia tram ad me ipsum. And I, when I am lifted up from the cross, from the earth, from the earth, will draw all things to myself. That's from John 12. Normally, when face to face with the supernatural, I feel afraid. And then comes the netimias, do not be afraid, it is I. And I understood that it would be the men and women of God who would set the cross with the teachings of Christ on the pinnacle of all human activity. And I saw our Lord triumphing, drawing all things to himself. Like when Moses lifted up the standard with the bronze serpent, people saw that, they were healed. Now, not only are we healed of our sin, but we are kind of drawn to him, like those people lining up to kiss the cross. And this, of course, leads, uh, this is something we have to pray about, that, that we raise the cross at the peak of all human activities. This is what we have to do. Men, women, lay, lay faithful priests. And it also means, of course, that we have to some way find ways of embracing sacrifice, embracing mortification, not escaping it. But because, because in some way, nothing works without without sacrifice. And there, finally, he quotes here, he, he, he quotes another passage from St. Rosaria, who says, you can't run away from sacrifice if you want to have a life of faith. If you're not determined to carry the cross, no matter what it is, joyfully we will be at the mercy of our instincts. Sometimes we may lead a, a rational life, but never a life of faith. If we are not determined to take up the cross, no apostle will stay on its feet. We can't grow careless. Any apostle that is done without a spirit of sacrifice is a building with no foundations. How many works of zeal started up by good people collapse because they don't want even to hear of mortification, penance, of the cross? They do lots of publicity, and make a lot of noise. But when a difficulty arises, everything gives way because they haven't got the foundation, which is sacrifice. And it all ends in failure because what they were after deep down was success in worldly terms. So you know, we have to ask ourselves that if you know, meeting people or enjoying things with them if, if we're somehow, in some way, simply seeking to kind of to have fun, right? Uh, or even to have, as he says, success in worldly terms, uh, you know, make, just making connections and, and we're more focused in our professional work in a, in a way that is perhaps disproportionate. And, uh, and it's important that we look back on our life. Maybe, you know, we have suffered, maybe we have had hardship and difficulty, maybe we have like a, an accumulation of tiredness um, or we haven't been able to do exactly always what we want or go where we want. 
we haven't been able to accumulate the, the you know the air miles because we don't maybe don't travel that much eh? but that's because we have to stay in our place and but it's very um, encouraging to think that one day I don't know when but one day when we are in a more supernatural context probably in heaven I think I don't know but I I can imagine that there will be a special room reserved for us separately from when we're adoring God face to face but there would be like a, like a separate room it would be like a like a trophy room right a trophy room you know like when you go and see famous sports figures uh, I don't know that have done a lot in their life and they have a room filled with all their the the medallions they won the trophies they won and they you know over the years and they keep them all and maybe there'll be like a trophy room where this person converted we didn't even know because we lived our mortification because we offered this uh, you know we spent more time with them we listened to them and that bang it's a trophy there right or you know and it'll be covered with all those trophies and we don't have to look at that trophy room now. We don't have to look at it. But when we look back, maybe we, we can think that, you know, as our father would say, vale la pena, it's worthwhile. It's worthwhile. And so, that's why Don Javier would invite us often to be generous in our mortifications. He said in another letter in 2006, he said, let us generously seek out small mortifications uh, during those hours. We can offer them in reparation for our sins and for those others of others, and in petition for the graces that so many souls, thousands and thousands, need in order to decide to follow Jesus closely. So he's offering that, and he, like he used to do, ask us these questions. Let us have no fear of the cross, my daughters and sons nor of the criticism of those who are pharisaically scandalized when they see Christians lovingly embrace that holy wood on which our Lord put to death our own death and ransomed us for eternal life. Do we love sacrifice? Are we worried about what others may think? Some people get very irritated by suffering or any hardship. Perhaps it has led some to, get, to become atheists because they feel somehow this suffering is uh, repugnant to them and they don't seem to want to understand it they see it as incompatible with a, with a loving God for us it's a seal of the work in that cross and throughout our life we must think uh, what, uh, what one theologian said that the, the cross of Jesus is really the, the single most revolutionary moral event ever in history but that it is like a, a capsule whose power is being released slowly and, and surely in terms of our own understanding and our own uh, absorption of it throughout the centuries, really, the Church, but us also personally. And more and more, as the centuries go on, we are grasping more and more the value of that cross. Deeper and deeper we go into the moral demands of the cross in our own life as well. And so that's why we can say that embracing the cross, loving the cross, can be truly for us something um, revolutionary. That's why our Father would say that God blesses with the cross. But this is something we must truly seek uh, to understand. 
So let us ask for this, uh, today's recollection, and let us try to really, well, pay close attention to the words of the Passion narrative today that we will hear in, in the Mass of Palm Sunday, so that we really absorb it more deeply, understand it more deeply. Let it be like one of those slow-release capsules, you know, those medications that release their power slowly, but deeply into our soul. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.